Hi, I'm Suzanne Syracuse. Welcome to my podcast focused on the future, keys to building a profitable, sustainable, and impactful business. And I'm excited to be partnering with wealthmanagement.com on this. This series will focus on what firms need to embrace to ensure their growth and success for the future. And this podcast is all about inspiring and educating the wealth management industry on how to make sure you are building a business that is essentially future-proof. And one major trend that has been coming out in most of my interviews is the importance of inclusion and addressing the needs of talent and prospective investors that come from diverse groups. Today, I'm speaking with two esteemed individuals in the higher education profession who I happened to meet a few months ago at a career fair organized by the Financial Alliance for Racial Equity, hosted at Howard University in Washington, D.C. I was so impressed with the insights that they shared on their panel that I wanted to bring it to my podcast, and I'm so excited that they agreed. So first, let me introduce Dr. Sylvia Rose, Assistant Dean, James T. George School of Business at Hampton University. And last but not least, Dr. Curtis Kidd, Telemac Director, HPS Center for Financial Excellence and Adjunct Professor at the School of Business at Howard University. Welcome and thank you both for taking the time to be a part of this program. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So, As I mentioned, this episode was inspired by a panel that you were both on during the Financial Alliance for Racial Equities HBCU Career Fair and listening tour this past September. So to set the stage for today, I'd like you to first talk a bit about your roles at the university and the makeup of the students at your universities. So why don't we start with you, uh, Dr. Kidd? Sure. So... The the nomenclature suggests that all HBCUs have the same sort of demographic. And that is probably close to the truth, but not enough of the truth that I like to, to, to say it with emphasis. And so therefore, in in general, for our school, the, the entirety of the school, interestingly enough, we have a demographic that skews female. Uh, our female population is around 70% uh, to 30% male, as well as, of course, it skews what I call African-Americans, but you know, with a caveat that African-Americans means those self-identified Black people who are connected to the transatlantic slave trade. And so we skew that way, but we have a significant portion of our student body from the Middle East, Pakistan uh, is one, uh, as well as other um, places of the African diaspora and, and China as well. Yeah, that's, I'm glad that you explained that because to be honest with everyone, you know, I host these podcasts. I do a lot in the diversity and inclusion um, topics in our industry. And I made the faux pas in our prep call by assuming that historically Black colleges and universities were primarily uh, Black and African-American, and that wasn't the case. So I'm glad that you set that straight, because I'm sure there are others that are listening, probably that would make that same mistake. And I'm sure you get asked that question a lot. And and tell me a little bit about the role, your role at the university. 
Sure. In an administrative capacity, I am the director of the HPS Center for Financial Excellence, which if I were to sort of sum it down and boil it down, really means that I interact with faculty to make sure that the curriculum is one where our private industry stakeholders are able to reap the rewards of our um, of our students, right? So any sort of discrepancy in terms of what is being taught, then I have to shift the curriculum to make sure that we are on top of best practices in the financial services sector. Love it. And, you know, interestingly, too, when I was, uh, again, going back to when I was doing the prep call, I was incredibly impressed that you were asking very, very specific questions about the wealth management industry and the various segments within wealth management industry. You weren't just kind of classifying it all into one. Um, so you you certainly know a, a bit about the industry that this podcast is focused on. Um, so thanks for sharing that. Um, Dr. Rose, uh, can you uh, tell us a little bit about the makeup of the students at your university? Is it similar? And a little bit about your role there. Yes, I'm happy to. Um, currently, I serve as the assistant dean of the School of Business, um, and I'm also assistant professor of finance, and I do teach a personal finance class. So my role, I'm basically, I deal with all types of administrative, academic, um, different programs, student programs um, that affects the, the entire James T. George School of Business. So I work with um, other faculty, other administrators, and with a lot of student groups. As far as our demographics of Hampton University, very similar, I would say, to Howard, where our male-female population is right around 67% female to 32% male. We are predominantly Black, African-American, um, would say that's 96%, and um, the other demographics um, make up the other 4%. We have students from Asia, Hispanic, Pacific Islander, and of course, you know, white non-Hispanic as well. So they come from all over. Interesting fact about us and our demographics. A lot of people assume that a lot of our students are in state, but in actuality, 79% of our students are out of state and 20.1% of them are in state. So that was interesting. I guess a lot of students decide that they want to go away from home, you know, when they go off to college to have a different type of experience. Absolutely. Well, that's, uh, it's interesting that your your demographics are very similar in the gender, but a, a little bit different in the, in their uh, racial makeup. Mm -hmm. uh, the 70% and the 67% women is very, very interesting. You're seeing mm -hmm. more and more, I think of that uh, across the board of enrollment in universities in general. So I'd love to to go into the the meat of this podcast, right? So many industries, not just the wealth management and financial services industries, are interested in recruiting diverse talent. So what approach has really resonated with you both and why? And are there certain industries that are doing a really, really good job of this? So Dr. Rose, why don't we start with you? Yes, I typically believe that the industries and companies that understand that this is not a one and done relationship. 
when they come on campus, um, students respond better to companies that show a genuine interest, not just in recruiting our students, but also in supporting them with scholarship, internship opportunities, mentorship opportunities, and then coming back on campus for various on-campus student engagements. You know, a lot of them do uh, receptions, class visit, professional development activities, like sharing with them like resume writing things or looking at what's the what's the language, the tech language now um, when you go out in business and with some of these firms, like using certain like Tableau, Alteryx, it's a given you should know Excel and making sure that that they connect and share what are the skill sets, you know, that they are looking for. And that it's not just when they come on campus, just a recruiting thing. So interestingly, the Financial Alliance for Racial Equity um, in their career fair had a session on uh, best practices on uh, your LinkedIn profile. So I think that those kinds of uh, sessions are really helpful to your students. And what about what about you, Dr. Kidd? Sure. Uh, you know, I would echo everything that she said, of course, as Dr. Rose is one of the best in the business. Yeah. I would uh, also say I would also say intentionality is one word that I have often used to express sort of what would make a good partner, right? Look, I, we, we all know, uh, especially from an administrative front, that when we interact with the private industry, they're doing this for some sort of pipeline. Or if you boil it down, a return on investment, and the return on their investment would be diverse talent. But to get that diverse talent in these days and times requires more hand-holding and hugging and being a very, very close partner, right? And kid, the one-and-done approach with this demographic doesn't go far. And maybe it would have gone far with me uh, and my demographic, but this demographic does not for a multitude of different reasons that could probably fill another podcast. And so that is that is what we have seen. And so then the next question that you asked is what industries? I'm biased because I'm in finance, right? So uh, the financial services industry in general has made a concerted effort to increase the diversity within the pipeline. Uh, but I will probably go one step further where they have made it a concerted effort to increase the education mm-hmm. before they increase the pipeline, right? And, and so that, that helps. And then another thing that helps is, and I know for certain Dr. Rose is going to agree with this, we haven't said it, when they trust the process, yes, right? Because education is a very slow, let me not say slow, let me say deliberate, <laughs> let me say deliberate process. And it takes sort of incremental building blocks to get to the outcome. Right. While, you know, private industry, you know, you needed it yesterday, mm-hmm. right? And so if you have a partner who is willing to walk that walk with you, Right. And to allow you to be an educator and allow, you know, your university processes out, however bureaucratic they may be to sort of take hold. 
then that is that typically works well. It does not work well when they push, push, push. It, it just it doesn't happen. I think that's such an important point to really bring out that this is not an immediate gratification, right? You're not going to support either one of your universities and immediately see results. And I think that that is a real disconnect between the financial services, not just financial services, quite frankly, but anyone that's looking to recruit diverse talent Mm -hmm. in and understanding that handholding, that path, that that partnership that has got to be a much more long-term focus than a, you know, hey, let me throw some money here and I, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to see the benefits to this in a year. I think that's mm-hmm. such an important point to clarify. So thanks for bringing that up. No um, problem. You know, let me let me add one more thing. Since you said that, you got my intellectual juices going. If in fact you only want one or two additional staff, diverse staff members then it actually makes sense just to throw a little money, maybe a couple of pizzas and an informational session. And if you get those one or two, then you'll be happy because then your return on investment is, you know, throughout through the roof. But if you are actually wanting to not only create the pipeline, but impact, if you want to have some sort of impact, then you have to do it the other way. Yeah. And we look at that as we want to work with companies and industries that want to be our educational partner, right? Because the industry is ever changing. Yes. And then, and this generation is a lot different than our generation. And you've got to hold their interest. You got to, you have to show them what's in it for them. And they have to feel that they can come in and make a difference to the bottom line and not feel that that's such because some people look at this industry as very intimidating, right? But if you spend time with them and and also, you know, just spend time and, and let students know this is doable and, and this is what we do, and this is where you can fit. And this is, you know, it's just a sharing of information so that they can find out is this really the industry that I have an interest in? Why? What is it that I that attracts me to this industry? And as he, as, as he stated, like, you know, it's not all the same, you know, because a lot of our students, they could be in any number of fields and they could have gone to any number of universities. They just chose to come to an HBCU. Yeah. Great points. I love the educational partner. I think that's so important. And that's really a strategy that a lot of financial service and wealth management firms already have in place for other business initiatives. Mm -hmm. And so just translating that to the recruitment and retention of diverse talent is is just, again, another way for firms to rethink about how they're thinking about the, the next generation of talent and the next generation of investors. So I love that already. I feel like we've gotten so many uh, interesting insights Mm -hmm. from you all. Um, So From your perspectives, especially in the roles that you're in at your universities, what are you witnessing as the key challenges facing both the wealth management and financial services industry in attracting students from your schools 
in actually pursuing a career in wealth management and financial services. So Dr. Rose, we'll start with you. Okay, kind of following on the line of what we were saying just a minute ago, when people say wealth management services, financial industry services, sometimes sometimes companies assume that these students at different levels from freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, they know exactly what that means. And a lot of times they do not recognize what the career paths are in those particular industries. So I would say when they come, present what they're presenting in a very real, authentic way so that students really get an understanding of what the various positions, career paths are available. You know, we need to help them understand the skill sets that match certain career paths there, right? Because some may look at wealth management as only, mm, that's only for the wealthy, right? It's not, you know, they're at various levels and what's wealth to one person is not the same that's wealth to another, you know, and there is room to develop in all at all different stages of, you know, where people might be in their economic, you know, state of life, right? And so I think if we make sure that they get an understanding, because I had sometimes maybe someone in the insurance industry, some students only think of that as insurance. Whereas we all know that in the insurance industry, they have wealth management, they have insurance, they have actuary, they have, there are a lot of different other roles inside that is not just oh, buying and selling life or health or this or that. So just being clear that there is a wealth of business opportunities in these um, in these different areas that all have yeah. an impact on your wealth. Yeah, I think that's an, an another really important point. In fact, some of the um, financial planning universities, University of Akron puts on a virtual career fair called Diversitas. And um, they had a session that's called the 12 tribes of financial planning. And it basically shows 12 different career paths within the wealth management financial planning industry, because it's confusing. It's a very segmented business. Um, So, and trying to explain that to someone that has no context of it uh, can be challenging. Also, just another point when you were talking, it made me think about a guest that I had on another podcast episode I did, who was challenging the term wealth management and how it was misleading and almost a bit bias and how we should even be thinking about changing that the the way that we're the 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 financial planning financial advice wealth management industry is even what it's even called we talk about it more as um financial advising right yeah financial advising financial planning and it can cover a whole range of things but then is not just the advisor to the individual, it's the advisor to the business, it's the advisor yes. to the family, it's the advisor, you know, there's just different aspects of it and letting them see that there are just so many different components there. Love it. Yeah. And Dr. Kidd, what about you? What are you witnessing as some of the key challenges for your students to pursue a career in, in the financial planning industry? So, Suzanne, I'm, I'm smiling because Dr. Rose took words out of my mouth, but on the I'm on the opposite side. So I'm gonna offer you a contrarian view, right? So I wrote down assumptions, and as she was saying that a lot of people would assume that they know what it, they being the students know what it is, 
and that maybe they should offer some sort of descriptor of what it is that they're talking about. My assumption is actually on the opposite side. They assume that my students don't know what it is. And they do when they're in my academy. By the time they get to the academy, I have given them what, what Dr. Rose is talking about, which is the exposure to every element. And so by the time they get to me, uh, or the, the we'll say, some sort of financial advisory firm gets to my students, my students know exactly what it is that they want to do, but then they are being spoken to as they don't. As it, and as that, is they don't. One, that is one sort of huge sort of, of, of hurdle and it comes from multiple things. It comes from hearing Dr. Rose and thinking that all HBCUs are the same or that everybody's at the same level at that particular HBCU or they don't know who they are talking to when they actually come into the university. They got one sort of speech and they give it to everybody. You wouldn't give the same speech to a freshman that you would give to a graduate student, right? You just wouldn't. And, and so, the contrarian argument that I that I have here is that there are definitely some, I would even say a significant portion of our student body that needs to be exposed to every sort of element of wealth management, financial advisory, uh, or whatever other sort of wording you use. But then there is another element at Howard specifically, and I'm almost certain at Hampton, that they know that they want to go into actuarial services. So then now speak to that. Mm-hmm. But then if you come in and you speak to them, which they'll probably take in a condescending way, that they don't know what's going on here, then you lose that generation very quickly, right? And so that's that's very funny that she used <laughs> that and I'm on the I'm on the opposite end. Yeah. And I don't really think we're on total opposites there because you know at various levels of students, depending on which program they're in, they have been exposed. You know, we that's have right. companies coming twice twice a week, every week for every semester. So they've kind of seen a little bit of everything. But I was more speaking into terms like when just people talk in general about it and then they don't say well, we offer this, we offer that, we offer that. A lot of them know what the different roles are, but as far as the companies that come, not knowing whether or not that company does this, this, and this. But I'll I'll retract that again. If they do their research before the guest gets in the room, they ought to know all of the different aspects of what they bring to the table. And so from, from her last point, let me close out this question for you, Suzanne. That takes us back to that question about who, what partners do we think are good? Mm-hmm. That would be a partner that we would think are good. I think Dr. Rose said like an educational partner. You have to, to be an educator, you must know where you are educating, what level are you right. educating, right? right? And and if you did your homework before you came in, you should know that. right? Because if you don't know that, then that's not a good partner for us. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's quite frankly, it's, it's very much like a sales 101, right? Mm-hmm. Like, do your research before you go in and make a pitch, right? Mm-hmm. So like asking these, you know, qualifying questions, so that you can tailor your presentation, you can tailor your approach to your individual universities. One of the things loud and clear, even though you're, you've got some 
uh, significant similarities, but you also, there's not one size fits all. You you both have very specific things that you're looking for your, and, and that your students are looking for. Um, so I think that's an important message to get out to the firms that are listening to this podcast. So- Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. If I could add just one more thing to it, it's um, it's very interesting because, and he'll know where I'm coming from with this, but with Howard and Hampton, in a lot of ways, we are always in some of the same circles. You know, there there are certain HBCUs that are at a certain tier, you know, as far as how we we know, right? Yeah, there's a certain tier, whatever. But then I guess what I'm saying, and and all of them and all of us are not the same. And sometimes depending on the company, the industry, they will talk to all of us as if we are the same. Whatever experience that they experienced at one HBCU, they think it's the same as the other. And nothing could be further from the truth. You know, they we are all very different. Some of us have very similar programs and things. And then there are others totally different. And so mm-hmm. it, it needs to be an educated um, connection on both ends. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. It's yeah, you want to be treated like an individual. You know, you're, you you've got your own specialties. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what advice do you have for firms looking to do a better job of inclusivity in their firms, with the goal of attracting diverse talent and also engaging future clients? Uh, Doctor Kidd. Sure. So, I would say. When you come to campus and you speak to a Dr. Kidd or Dr. Rose, that oftentimes we would get the, let's say, uh, DE&I coordinator. We would get the, the internal working group, and typically it's uh, you know African-American working group, right? We, we would get those people. And then so then when we make an ask, those people cannot provide what we're looking for. They need to then go back to their boss or their boss's boss, right? So there is typically a mismatch of what it is that I need and what it is that private industry is sending to me. And what they typically send to me are people who agree with what we're doing, who are all passionate about the same thing. Fantastic, right? They come in, they say they're passionate about this, this is what they wanna do. And I say, yeah, I'm sure you are, right? Cause mm-hmm. you are either an alum here or you are you have the same hue that I have or in some way, shape or form, you identify with me and the students, right? I get that, but you're not who I'm talking, the, who I need to talk to. If, in fact, I am trying to get maybe financial resources or even time resources, people resources, right? You're not who I need to talk to. You're just who they send to me. And so I would say then those who have done it right, they don't send that person. They send the top person, the one who signed the checks. And if that person is on board, then there you go. Then it typically trickles down, you know, the culture trickles downward. Yeah, love that. Great advice. Dr. Rose, what about you? What advice do you have for firms looking to do a better job of inclusivity with the goal of attracting diverse talent? And is your advice different 
for a smaller firm, say a financial planning firm, an RIA versus like a large corporate Wall Street firm? Yeah. Um, On the um, first point, and agree with Dr. Kidd on that, so much so that as we are setting up appointments for companies to come, we in our pre-agreeing to have you to come, we have put out there that we want a range of representatives, not just alum that just came in and working their way up or the recruiter, whatever. We always ask for a key executive that can make the major decisions because after they spend a day with us in an immersion program that we do, a leadership program, then at the end of the day, we hope they've had a great experience meeting various students, having different exchanges with students. But their last session is with the dean and the assistant dean. And then we talk business, real business, right? And so we, because if all they're going to send is the recruiter, and as he said, everyone that looks like us, and a couple of alums that are at the, they can do that just straight through the career center, like the career center. They don't have to come just to the to our school. But once you come in our space, we're expecting a much higher level of exchange of what we're trying to do and and what you're trying to do. And also we've done our own homework. We know what's being done with PWIs versus what's being done to HBCUs. So we're going to ask for the same level of commitment that we have already, we already know is happening in other places. So the last stop will be with us. And um, and they get it now with the program that we're doing. We, we both have different kinds of program, but for this particular program where we bring it in, they kind of know. And so then at the end of the day, we sit out and we, and we sit down with them and talk about these are the types of things where you can increase this. And we do need to be talking to someone who does have a decision making kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And as it relates to small versus large, is that what you asked me about, right? Yes. Yeah. A mm-hmm. boutique firm versus the large corporate entity. I think the boutique firm has to do a really good job of what sets them apart. What is the opportunity for the student that comes to a small operation? Are you going to be using them as like an analyst for three, four, five years and a senior? You know, these students would be looking to maybe come in at one level. And after a little while, you've done a great job. You can be manager. And after a little while, you can be partner. And, you know, see, we're we're trying to train them to get to the, to the C-suite, not mm-hmm. just to be at that entry level and doing whatever. Now, some, they like that. They don't want to manage groups. But you they need to make sure if it's a boutique thing, there's a reason why that's attractive, more attractive to some students than others. And I would also say the uh, flexibility of locations, because this generation almost is as good as the company name and what you're doing. They're attractive to certain um, geographical locations, right? So all of that kind of plays in. But I think the larger companies have more opportunities for the students to move around on different Mm -hmm. tracks. So if you have different tracks that they can go to, you know, if they start in one area, it's an easier move to say, you know what, I looked at that on the financial advisory side. I want to go on the equity or I want to go on on this side of it. You know what I mean? So it's easier to move like that. Whereas in a boutique, you got to sell that a different way. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. So in a lot of the the listeners of this of this podcast are in that RIA, the smaller boutique firm. So I think that's great advice to really showcase how you're different, showcase a, a, a career path within the firm, the various opportunities, all of that. 
So what is the process for helping students in evaluating which firms they decide to join, right? So they, I would imagine they all do internships, but what's the process when they are making that decision um, after their internship? Like how do they decide which firm to go work for? And what are the top factors that impact where they choose? So Dr. Kidd, do you want to start with that one? I, I can, and I'll link it to what we just talked about, and I'll try to make the transition nice Great. and easy and smooth, right? So <laughs> specific to registered investment advisors and in the financial advisory space, those which we would consider RIAs at a boutique level would also need for for my students, and I'm sure for Dr. Rose's students, but let me speak to my students and her students alone and not other HBCUs. They would need to make the, the monetary sort of rationale work. And this is what I mean. So for wealth management, especially for the people that are probably listening to this podcast, you typically have to build a book of business and it takes some time and you make cold calls maybe, or you get some of the, the clients sort of the spill off from other people or whatever the case may be, right? And there you would have to be a lot more entrepreneurial just in general to make that professional trajectory work for you. When in fact, that student who you would want, let me tell you who else wants them, JP Morgan Chase, Goldman, other private equity shops and, and big real estate firms. I don't know, just to name a few, they have four other offers of which each of them, even for an internship, even for an internship, are offering them relatively sizable sums and housing stipends versus what it is that you would, you would offer as an RIA, right? So then that means that, and here's the transition, if a student comes to me and I know that that student does not do well in structured areas mm -hmm. where rules are involved and corporate culture are, is predominant, then I would probably steer that student towards, hey man or lady, since we have 70% women, <laughs> right? In our, <laughs> in our, That's right. Um, I don't think that that would fit for you. And I think that this RIA would, let's make sure that they teach you all the things that you need, right? So that's one. So it would be fit. And more, more often than not, especially Dr. Rose, no, if you teach these students, you really know them on a different level, right? So, so fit, right? Where it is that they actually want to be five to 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. Some of them already say that they don't want to work for the rest of their lives and they are natural entrepreneurs. Okay, that's fine. Sometimes I think that they need technical skill training that you get in a two-year rotational program uh, as an analyst. And then I would say, you know, venture out, right? And sometimes not. So also skill level is something else that I would think of. And so if I think they need more skills in a structured environment, 
as opposed to skills uh, in a not so structured environment, then I may steer them another way. And I would probably say there are just some unique skill sets in general that set the registered investment advisor, a successful registered investment advisor, apart from everyone else. He or she doesn't have to be a stock picker. They have to be a, a salesperson. And if I have a student who has a, a skill set that is specific to a certain component of finance, then I would probably push them there because I would say you would succeed. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Because you have, there are some students that could be could be the smartest whip in the group, right? But their people skills, their personal, their personality, exactly. That's not the person you want to be on the financial advisory side, right? Because you have to have those people skills. And then tell them people won't know, won't care what you know until they know that you care. And <laughs> you need to make sure that you can have that conversation so that they understand that you are really trying to look out for their best interests. So certain students are more are more suitable for that kind of things. Then you have a very technical, analytical type that they just want you to leave them alone and let them pick. They want to work in the portfolio thing then and give that advice to the advisors or to the weather. They want to do that work. I was that. I was the people person. And I love that the firm that I went with in the beginning, so I won't say, that they had all these experts behind the scenes, you know, picking the portfolios. After I spent time with the family or with the a wealthy client or with the this or with the that, right? And I could gather all that and I got them to trust me and want to work with me and this, that, and the other. Then after they leave, I could go and sit with my portfolio managers and we could craft the perfect solution for that situation. And so as Dr. Kidd has stated, um, it's just very important. We do get to know the skill sets, the strengths, the weaknesses of our students, and we can play a partner. And one other thing that I try to say to them is don't make everything about money because for a lot of them, it is it's the money. They're going to say, you know, you offered me this and a signing bonus and housing and that. But if you go in there and you really can't get into the work and you really don't enjoy it, you're not going to be successful. That's only going to be a little while. The money is only going to sustain you for a little while. Try to have that right balance. Now, you know, we need to get paid, right? But um, find your passion and you'll be an expert in it. The money will follow, right? But I'm not I'm saying so that you're at the bottom of the totem pole now to do your passion. It, it, it's got to be competitive. But um, I've known students that turned down a perfectly great opportunity that we saw them do internships with them several times, right? And it was a great fit. They did well. They blah, blah, blah. But then someone came in the 11th hour and offered them $20,000 more. Where do you think they went? And they went yeah. there. And it might not necessarily have been the best choice for them, but, you know, it just depends. Well, I'm glad that you are both there coaching and caring and having a, a personal interest in making sure many of your students are thinking about the right things when they when they look to make their their first career move and think about what they're going to do on their career journey and yeah money is definitely not everything <laughs> some people are very motivated by it but it's a very short term uh, incentive if you if you're not if you're not really loving what you do so 
with um I can't believe it but we're we're at the end of our of our podcast so I always like to ask one final question with the title and the theme of the podcast focused on the future keys to building a sustainable profitable and impactful business in mind what is your last line what key takeaway one sentence or two that you'd like to leave our audience with today so Dr. Kid what's that last line for you Yeah I would probably say make sure uh, diversity is part of your profit-seeking mission, not philanthropic. Great. Love that message. Dr. Rose? Um, with me, I would say, especially as it relates to collegiates, reach out early and often and do it in a very strategic and meaningful way for all concerned. Love it. And being authentic. I think, authentic. I think everybody can can tell when someone is not. Well, you both were certainly very authentic on this podcast. <laughs> and, um, I loved it. Uh, just I could go on and on and on. Um, but thank you again so much for being my guest today. What amazing insights you shared on what firms need to do to attract HBCU students to the wealth management and financial planning industries. And, and how to best work with universities such as yours, right? Not one, one size does not fit all. <laughs> so thank you again. I'm Suzanne Syracuse. Thanks for listening. And I hope this episode leaves you feeling even more excited to be focused on the future. Mm-hmm.